Yes, people, what the hell is going on? Welcome to another episode of Echoes from the Void. And god damn it, it's been it's just been a horrible week, right? With all the shit that's been going on. Man, it's insane. And yeah, I know it's been tough across the pond, but um yo, so a six-year-old was thrown off the tenth floor of the Tate Modern last week, which is just insane. So it was on Sunday. Um, yeah, a a a a mother and a kid were on the um viewing platform, and that she turns around. And the next thing she she see realizes someone has thrown her her son off the tenth floor. And um yeah, so he landed on the roof of the fifth floor, which because when I first heard it, I was just like, how is someone surviving a fall from the tenth floor? Um, But yeah, so he landed on the roof of the fifth floor, which is kind of miraculous still, because that's still a friggin' fall. That's in, it's it's crazy. And what's crazy, so the person that did it is a 17-year-old. A 17-year-old, and as of this point, they haven't been able to find any connection between the 17-year-old and the family. No connection whatsoever, which is just, it, it, it's, it's insane. It's shocking. It's shocking. And, like, the crazy thing is, right, so, you know, to, 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 most of there are some free things in the Tate. There's some free exhibitions, but the really good exhibitions, the really new stuff, you have to pay. So you feel most of the people in the Tate have paid to be there, or they're members. So you're paying that membership cost to be there. So you're kind of feeling it's a certain type of person inside the Tate. So, you don't expect anything like this to happen. This is just some some insane thing. Like, yeah, you, you don't expect any of this to have happened, you know? It, it, yeah, it's just... Oh, man. And, like, what makes it worse as well... Like, the family were were visiting from France. So, I mean, it's bad. Like, it's bad whichever way you look at it. But these people, they were on holiday. They were on holiday. This little boy was on holiday. He's, like, looking, seeing the sights with his family. You know, having this epic view across London. Next thing he knows, he's hurtling off the side of the goddamn building. Which is, man, it, it, yeah, it's horrendous. So, the crazy thing is, right, so you hear, you know, uh, 
like I, initially I heard, oh, okay, so the boy is out of life-threatening um, support, right? But then you read a, a, a day later that he's got a fractured spine and head injuries. Head injuries and a fractured spine. It's just... You know what I mean? Like, yeah, maybe he's not going to die there and then. But it's it's not... You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not a good way to be. This is not a good way to be. He's also got a deep brain bleed. That's horrendous. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just like, if this kid... Is able to walk away. Just walk away. That's going to be a big thing. If he's. If, if, if he gets out of this. Without any. You know. Like. Brain brain injury. Without any. um, You know. Serious brain injury. I would be shocked. I would be shocked I'd be shocked if the kid will be able to walk again You know Like in theory he could still die from these injuries This is Just Ah oh, it, It's 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 heart rendering man Like it's just a It's a foul thing And just hearing this after All the crazy shit in the states It was just like Ugh it's not good. It's not good. You just wonder who could do that. Like who the fuck could do that? Like even to an enemy, like throwing them off a tent floor, you know. But to do it to someone you don't even know, that's I I don't know. Like it's hard to put that shit into words. It really is. It's, it's, it's crazy. And the Tate is such like a joyous place. Like just walking around that. You just. You know. You're, you're captivated by this just incredible work. So for this to happen there. It's just. Ugh. It's, it's, it's just not good. It's not good. And. Yeah, I realise, um, yeah, starting the episode kind of bleakly, apologies, but um, yeah, let, let's get into some other news, and then we'll try and get into some more fun shit, alright? Okay, but yeah, we got some, we got some other stuff, we got the, the TV, we're looking at the Spanish, Spanish Princess, part one, um, the War of the Wolf, is the book this week, you know, and and there's a little review from the Tate Britain, so there's some nice stuff, trust me, so stick with it, stick with it people, okay? So, in some weird, bizarre news, it has become apparent that McDonald's straws aren't recyclable. Now, Yes, that's right. The straws are not recyclable. Now, the weird thing is, so, there was a big push to move from plastic straws 
because of um you know the environment and the fact that they wash up in the in the sea and you know they were getting stuck in fishes and turtles and just wildlife and making them ill and killing them and all of this so there was a push like we're stopping using plastic straws and we're going to move to um eco-friendly material so mcdonald's moved to paper straws but is now come out that yeah these paper straws that they're using can't be recycled so you have to be thrown in general waste which is bizarre so bizarre now what they're saying is that you know in theory they are recyclable but because they increased the thickness because you know people complained initially that the, the straws were dissolving and whatnot because of the thickness of the straws now it made it difficult to recycle them which is just just fucking weird firstly just take the straw out of your friggin drink do you know what i mean don't leave it in the drink then the straw is fine it's not going to dissolve secondly look there's a, there's a few places that are using glass straws did you glass straws or like why don't you do this right shops could sell like i don't know metal straws say metal straws or, or wood bamboo straws whatever whatever that could be retractable so you could carry you know and there's all shit you, you could do you bring your own straw in you bring your own re, you know reusable straw in and you get a discount on your drink if you did that people would bring their own shit people would bring their own straw then you just don't have to worry about all this shit you know what I mean? Because this is just some crazy shit. Don't say you're making a move to help the environment that isn't actually helping the environment. It's just, it's just kind of bizarre, right? Yeah, it's weird. Really friggin' weird. Okay, so in a, a, an... Yeah, it's a weird piece of news. And, and, and I think it clearly looks like a money grab to me. So, Alf Clausen was a composer for The Simpsons, right? So, he'd worked on the show for 27 years, which is a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. And, you know, so he was 78 when, he'd, when he left. Well, he left... He said he was sacked, but this was in 2017, in 2017, right, and he is now suing the show for um, allegedly firing him due to his age and disability, that is what he is saying, Um. And he said, this reason was pretextual and false. 
Yeah. Instead, plaintiffs unlawfully terminated um, my contract due to perceived disability and age. Which is, um, yeah, that's what he's saying. Now, there's no, there's no word on, you know, what the disability is that he's saying was one of the reasons for him to be sacked. But, yeah, so, at, so after he left the show, Fox brought in um, Bleeding Fingers Music, which is a production company um, which was founded by Russell Emmanuel Hanzimmer and Steve Kofsky. Now, so, um, Clausen's suit says that his replacement was substantially younger in age, who was not paid, um, you know, the same as him, so they got this person who was younger for less money, and they're not disabled. But, like, the weird thing about this is, firstly, it's like, you know, he waited two years before he filed. That's weird. Jerry, now Fox is owned by Disney. Now you're filing. So that, that that's the weird thing, right? But the other, the other part of this is, you know, you're, you're essentially saying that... When you left, they should have brought in another, like, 78-year-old or someone within that age frame. Which, yeah, no one is, like, under any requirements to do that. That's just a weird, it's a weird thing to kind of say that, oh, my replacement was younger. That's not allowed. Also, the other weird thing about this, right? So you're saying you were sacked because of a disability. You're not saying what that disability is. So it could be, it could, you know, it, it could be thought that may, which, whatever disability Alf Clawson has is a non visible disability, right? So the bit the, the then the thing is how does he know that his replacement also hasn't got a non-visible disability? He doesn't know this. Doesn't know this, but he's saying, "Oh, my replacement doesn't have a disability. They're younger and they're not disabled." Something he does not know. And then, oh, because they're not paid, because they're getting paid less than what you were, that's, that's a crime? No, because he'd been working on the show for 27 years. So, over that time, he's getting pay rises, you know, all of this, bonuses, everything, it all adds up. So, someone coming in, obviously, they're not going to be on what he was on, you've got to build to that shit, 
So it's just a weird, it's a weird lawsuit. And yeah, it just screams money grab because you're like, oh shit. You know, at least four films that Disney has put out this year have gone over a billion. So, yo, those motherfuckers got money. I want some of that. Like, I would be curious to know if this goes anywhere. Because, yeah, it just screams of bullshit to me. Um, Yeah, so I'm kind of curious. I want to know what's going to happen. Chances are it gets settled out of court. You know, just because no one wants this bullshit publicity. But, yeah. It, it it just screams money grab, man. It just screams money grab. Oh, and um, yeah, gonna end the news this week with with I think my favourite story of the week. So um, yeah, this is great. This is so fucking great. There was a guy in Spain was caught. Fly tipping. So, um, yeah, he, which is so weird, He his friend videoed him throwing an old refrigerator off a, um, into a ravine. So, yeah, for some reason, who knows why, but they videoed this, they videoed him doing this joking about recycling and yeah they so they must have posted it on social media or something but yeah so um the uh <laughs> the, the the city council of this spanish um city called Al, almira they they found the guy find him 41,000 like 50,000 dollars and made him <laughs> made him go down the ravine collect the fridge and then recycle it properly which is great it's great firstly what a moron you know what I mean? Why are you videoing yourself doing this stupidness? Like, why aren't you recycling it? Because it's not that difficult. Come on now. It's not that friggin' difficult. So, yeah. I, I, and showing off on social media. Yeah. It's about time that shit bites people in the arse. So, I think it's hilarious that he got caught got fined a big chunk of cashola and was made to go down the ravine and collect the fridge. So it's great. So with all the bullshit happening in the world, it's nice to see these little things kind of helping to tip the... Well, it's not really going to tip the scale from all the shit during from last week. But it's a, it's something, right? It's something. Okay. So um yeah, let let's um let's talk about a little tape visit, right? Let's do that. 
brighten the mood. So I tried to go and see at the weekend. Um, as you might have heard in last week's episode. But it was just crazy. It was so damn busy. So um, luckily the Tate was doing a member's private view. So I went down to that. Yo, such a big difference, man. Like it was still there were still people there, but you were able able to get close and actually see the art, which is really good. So I was happy that I got to see the new Van Gogh exhibition at the Tate Britain. Um Alright, so this is what it says. So um yeah, it's um the EY exhibition Van Gogh and Britain presents the largest collection of Van Gogh's paintings in the UK for nearly a decade. Some of his most famous works will be brought together from around the world, including Shoes, Starry Night over the Rue, um La Arelune and two works he made while a patient at the St. Paul Asylum, at um, Eternity's Gate, and Prisoners Exercising. They will be joined by the very rarely lent sunflowers from London's National Gallery. Van Gogh lived in England as a young man for several crucial years. He walked the streets alone, dreaming of the future. He fell in love with British culture, especially the novels of Charles Dickens and George Eliot, and he was inspired by the art he saw here, including paintings by Constable and Milas, which are featured in the exhibition. They affected his paintings throughout his career. The exhibition also looks at the British artists who were inspired by Van Gogh, including Francis Bacon, David Bumberg, and the young Camden Town painters. It shows how his vision set British artists on the road to modern art. Um, I <laughs> what I didn't realize. See, when so when I saw this advertise. I just really just paid attention to Van Gogh. You know, I saw the EY, the EY exhibition Van Gogh. I didn't see the and Britain part. So when I came in, this, so there was a large text on the wall as you come in. And I was looking at this and it was like, oh yeah, so Van Gogh lived in Britain. I was like, huh, he lived in Britain. Then I turned around and I saw... <laughs> Van Gogh and British. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I understand now. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was interesting to see. Um, yeah, to see it all. Uh, like I think one thing that is really I always find interesting about Van Gogh's work is that, like, really his style pretty much stays the same in essence but what you do notice is like some pieces 
look like he did them very quickly or were rushed. You know, other pieces um, look more meticulously put together, you know, and like more care has been taken. You have some pieces where the main point of focus is is really articulately done and then just the background is like, yeah, whatever. And then you have um, like the work which is um, like say it, it, it just has um, one kind of going over. Right, so he he paints it, and it's like a delicate finish, and then his heavier stroke pieces that you know you can see thick, really thick layers of paint, and all of this. Oh, and then there are I forgot the last kind of work. So you've got the pieces that. When you get up close, it's all a bit kind of like really thick and heavy. But when you step back and you look at them, like it's just this really great like forest or something like that. And um, yeah, they're the kind of things. We, so it's like, you know, when you're looking at the work... And especially, you know, when you need to get close to be able to see the work. So, uh, some of it, yeah, it's fine getting close. Uh, other bits, you know, the, the, the um, yeah, it's harder to see. Because you need, you get the best view when you step back and look at it. Because when you get up close, it's blockier, you know, it, it it's not as intricate. But, you know, from afar, it, it, it's crazy. And, you know, I think those pieces are even more intricate because you're just like, you you get the real feel from standing back. So to draw it in a way that, you know, gives this real intricate feel from afar, that just seems crazy. Because up close, it's not like that. So being able to draw it in that fashion, knowing that the real the real view is from a distance, yeah, that just seems crazy, right? That seems like it, it just takes a lot of skill, you know, to be able to do that. So it was fascinating seeing all the work together. And seeing all the these different styles of his individual style, you know, in one place, so you can look and just compare and everything, you know. So yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting exhibition. The thing that I found so disappointing, though, so disappointing. Like a lot for most of the exhibitions you see in the tape, so um yeah they've they've got the text. It's not always huge, but the, you know there's some like the main text. You know the over the the overview text is often big, and that's usually black on a white background. So if you stand up really close, 
you know, it you can read it, right? In this exhibition, they like look, I'm fine with the fact that, you know, they wanted the walls to all have a different shade. That's fine. I don't have an issue with that. But be conscious with the text colour, you know? It's like they've they had this dark orange colour for the walls in one room. Then they had black text on top of this dark orange. So difficult to see. Couldn't see it. Couldn't. There was no attempt. If I'm trying to read that, I'm fucking up my eyes. You feel me? Then in another room, grey background. Right? So they had white text in some places. Not a good look. And in other places, black text. Again, not a good look. The colours don't work. And, And this was a theme going through all the rooms that yeah they they made it in a way that aesthetically yes aesthetically you know people might think oh that's great but when you break it down it's not accessible man it, it, it they made it extremely difficult to see and the thing that really is frustrating like, the audio tours aren't cheap. They're not cheap. And it's just like, look, I pay a friggin' membership. Yo, throw me a motherfucking audio tour for free. You know what I mean? Like, that should be part of the friggin' membership deal. A free audio tour. You know, I think they, they knock 50p off on a concession. Fuck you, Tate. That's bullshit. It's bullshit. Especially when you have made it impossible to actually make even a stab at seeing the text in the exhibitions. See, that that soured this exhibition for me. You know? I, I just thought it was a shame. Because, like, so when I passed through on Saturday... So you've got the room with the um, the sunflowers in. And there's loads of different sunflowers in that room. And I remember saying, um, I didn't know he painted so many sunflowers. I swear these aren't all his. And then, um, yeah, I was told, no, 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 no. So a lot of these paintings are from other artists who were inspired by his sunflowers. Which is, yeah, that's an interesting thing, right? But there's no way to find that out if you can't see the information. So this this exhibition was very information-reliant. So for them to make it so hard to actually digest that information... It's fucked up. It, 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 it was just, they dropped the ball. The Tate dropped the ball. And that's just, yeah, it's just bad. It's just bad. You know? Like, um, so from going on Saturday and really enjoying, you know, the Frank Bowling 
and then the Francine Lee McGowan. Really enjoying those exhibitions and really looking forward to this to then finding it ah just you know barrier ridden it's just a shame it's just a real big shame um so yeah i i left a comment in the feedback box you know we'll see if they pay heed to what i said i doubt it because you know I've worked with the Tate around disability in a few roles I've had at um, other organisations. So this is, it's not like this is stuff that they do not know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We will see, right? We will see. But if you are interested in going to the exhibition, it ends on the 11th of August. So, uh, yeah, head there, um, head there soon, people. Head there soon. Okay, so just had UFC on ESPN five, Colby Covington v Robbie Lawler, and um, yeah, going into this, the whole thinking was. It could clean up who is going to be the next challenger for Kamara Usman's welterweight title. You know, if if Covington wins, he gets the next shot. If Lawler wins, he positions himself in the mix and he's very close to a title shot. And then on this card as well. We had some great fights, you know, we had some great fights, like Scott Holtzman was on the card, we've got the um, co-main event, which was Jim Miller against Clay Guida, and you have rising stars like Nasserat Hazmarat, you had um, the return of Mickey Gall, what could he do after he's He's lost to Diego Sanchez. Also, Antonina Shevchenko, Valentina's little sister. She was going to be making a return after a loss to Roxanne Modafferi. So, it was just like, ooh, what's going to happen? How are people going to respond? You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, not a bad card. Some really good fights, man. Some really good fights. Okay, so look, if if this is your thing, you can get the full breakdown on Chin Check. So uh, yeah, if you're subscribed, that's probably downloaded. So you're all good. Um, if not, yeah, just go take a look and um grab the episode. But yes, it was it was a good fight. It was good. A lot of fights. Um, we'll just give you the last two. Jim Miller, Clay Guida, it was, it was really good, it was very short, but it was a great fight, really was, so Guida comes out like the energy, 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 ugh, energizer bunny he is, lands a great overhand on Miller, stuns him, Miller is rocked, 
he is rocked, very close to going down. So Guida's like, yes, goes in for the kill. He drops his guard slightly, which is all Miller needs. Miller comes with his own, hits him straight down the middle. Now Guida is rocked. Guida's on Queer Street. He drops his head. Miller's like, yes, please, grabs the neck. Pulls guard and yeah, it's got him in a guillotine and it's tight. It's so tight. Chokes him the fuck out. Now, yeah, could you say it was a late stoppage? It it it, it kind of was. It wasn't crazy late, but yeah, I kind of felt that when the referee grabbed his arm and the way his arm dropped. Yeah, you could see he was out. You could see he was unconscious. Um, But yeah, it was a great victory for Jim Miller. The main event. Oh, man. This, it was a great performance from Covington. It really was. He threw like over 600 shots. But Robbie Lawler, I have no fucking clue what he was doing. He just wasn't doing anything. He was not throwing shots. You kind of feel if the Robbie Lawler who beat Rory McDonald, who beat um, uh, Natural Born Killer, uh, Carlos Condon, yes, if he beat Johnny Hendricks, if that Robbie Lawler had come out, Covington would have just been done. But it wasn't, it wasn't even a Lawler we saw against Ben Ashgren. He didn't look in that phenomenal shape. It was so odd, so odd. But before this fight, Lawler was saying this is the best camp he's ever had. He's in great shape. He's not got any injuries, nothing like that. So, hey, we have to assume he's fine. He was fine. But for some reason, he did not want to throw a shot. Didn't want to throw a shot. Also, it's just like, look, you know you're fighting Covington. You know that. You know his takedown is good. But it's like, Robbie was so easy to take down in those first two rounds. It was insane. Because, you know, we, we've seen him have better takedown defense than what he showed in this fight. He just looked off all the way. Now, Third round onwards, Covington wasn't able to just take him down on wheel. So you had that. But still, Lawler wasn't really doing much. Full fifth round, Lawler started to press forward more. Started to come forward on the centre of the ring. He still wasn't throwing for anything, though. Like, occasionally a one, two, but that was it. No combinations. When he did land, they were big. They were shots that, like, stung Covington. But for whatever reason it was, he just didn't want to throw. Didn't want to throw. And then in the fifth round, you're like, look, he needs to knock him out. That's clear. He needs to knock him out. Still didn't do anything. You get the, the thing saying it's a minute left. So you're thinking, okay, Robbie's going to unload now. Nope. 30 seconds left. Okay, now. Nope. 
10 seconds left. I don't think Lawler threw one punch in the last 10 seconds. This was the weirdest display from Robbie Lawler. The weirdest display. But, hey, can't take anything away from Covington. He imposed his will. He went in with a strategy and he stuck with it. So, yeah, really good from Covington. Odd from Lawler. This wasn't a bad fight card. Wasn't a bad fight card at all. Some really fun fights, especially on the preliminary card. Um, but, yeah, for all of that information, go check out Chin Check, people. All right? So, this week, I um, had a chance to check out part one of The Spanish Princess, which is a um, historical period drama uh, developed by Stars TV. Um, so, it was eight episodes, and... Um, it was put together by Emma Frost and Matthew Graham. So they developed this series from um, so a couple of books by Philippa Gregory, who is a historical novelist. Uh, the books were The Constant Princess and The King's Curse. And this series was a sequel to um, The White princess which was then followed by the white queen uh and it aired um in may yeah a few months ago in may so part one consisted of eight episodes and a um an additional eight episodes have been commissioned which will come out uh Sometime next year in 2020. So, the premise of this is... Teenage princess Catherine of Aragon, daughter of Spanish rulers Isabella and Ferdinand, finally travels to England to meet her husband by proxy, Arthur, Prince of Wales heir apparent of Henry VII of England, to whom she has been betrothed since she was a child. Unwelcomed by some, she and her diverse court, including her lady-in-waiting Lena, who is of Moorish ancestry, struggle to adapt to English customs. Catherine is horrified to learn that it is Arthur's younger brother, the arrogant Harry, Duke of York, who is the author of the romantic correspondence she has received. When Arthur dies suddenly, her destiny as the one who will bring peace between Spain and England seems in doubt until she sets her sights on Prince Harry. So, yeah, a very lavish and intriguing story. Uh, and it starred um, Alicia Butcher-Herley. 
uh, who played Isabella of Castile, Laura Carmichael, who played Margaret Pole, Daniel uh, um who played the Spanish ambassador to England, Di Fossilida, Aaron Kuban, who played Ovid, Elliot Cowan, who was King Henry VII, Philip Cumbus as Thomas Woosley, uh, Charlotte Hope as Catherine of Aragon, Georgie Henley as Margaret Tudor, um, Angus Imri as Arthur, uh, Stephanie Levy John as Lena de Cardons, uh, Alan McKenna as Richard Pohl, Alexandra Muan as Elizabeth of York, Rory O'Connor as Harry, Duke of York, Nadia Parks as Rosa de Vagas, who was a number of Catherine's ladies in waiting, um, and Harriet Walter as Margaret Beaufort. So, yeah. It was a huge cast, and, um, you know, this is a story that has been told so many times, there's so many books written, there's been films, TV series, you know, it, it, it's, it's part of an epic, epic history, really. So it was just like, oh, what will this take be like? And, you know, I think as a period drama goes, like, and as you would expect, so the settings were, were, were you know, very lush, you know, very nice settings, very fitting for the time, you know, invoking that age so they help to tell the story you know the costumes the costumes were all very lavish and nice and what you would expect you know the type of fare that we've seen in other dramas other films other period pieces so all of this worked all of this helped take you to this period of history, helped you envision this story, you know, it, it was great, all of that really good, um, the story itself, now, yes, the story itself, it, um, I mean, it's melodrama, right? This is, uh, yeah, it's like a soap. It was, you know, had those elements and the melodrama with this rendered historical piece, this moving painting, as it were, um... And I, I think 
if you didn't know the story, if we haven't have had other things, this would be this would be a fine piece. It'd be a fine piece. I think there was some loose and fast plays with history. Yeah, I guess I mean some of the main stuff was um probably the ages of the characters. You know, because in fact, like Catherine and Arthur would have been fifteen. Uh Henry or Harry at the time would have been I think ten when the when the wedding first took place, coming on to eleven. And when and also time periods. So when Harry finally marries Catherine and becomes Henry, he's 18 now. But within this story, everything kind of moves pretty quickly. Uh, so, yeah, that you know, there was a, a, a big gap. In time, so essentially, probably roughly seven years from the death of Arthur to then the marriage of Henry, Harry. So yeah, there's there's a lot of craziness with time frames, things like that. I think also then, you know, because we're having like Lady um Lady Beaufort. Um, you know, she's being depicted as this evil, uh, you know, evil kind of manipulator, and um, Margaret Pole. I there was a lot of Margarets at that time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Margaret Tudor, like you know, this Lady Bullfoot was Margaret Bullfoot, and then you've got um. Yeah, Margaret Pole, Maggie Pole. It's a lot of Margarets, man. You know what I mean? They, they, they weren't very original with the names. Um, but yes, so Margaret Pole, Maggie Pole, is depicted as this saint, essentially. And, you know, from what we know of the time, like, and life on court, it was so duplicitous, you know what I mean, like, to survive, you had to lie and cheat, you know, you couldn't be a saint, couldn't be a saint, because, A, it it was clear saints wouldn't survive, you know what I mean, so I think depicting Margaret as this holier vital person, Like, I don't know, it just didn't really sit Didn't really sit And then when she's doing things like Siding with Edmund and and, and stuff like this It's all a bit Hmm You know, because you you put yourself in that place So you can't then act all You know, like, I didn't I'm innocent, I'm so innocent because, like, look, I can, you, obviously, you will lie to, through your teeth, when being asked by, you know, the queen and whatnot, but behind closed doors, 
you're you're not acting all innocent and shit because obviously you're not and you're doing what you had to do and everyone realizes that so it was just odd the way it was played out um like some of the act, like some of the acting was great some of the acting was really good some of the acting you know wasn't as good you know, like Georgie Henley as um, Meg. <sighs> there was times when she was okay. There was also times when it was just very hammy. Very hammy. Like the same with Lena and Oviedo. Like really good for the most part. But then you've got these hammy periods. And it's all a bit like, yo, what's going on? Like. It, it, yeah, it just seemed like sometimes the supervision, you know, the production, the direction was on point, and other times it was just like, yeah, you know, just do what you want today, which was, was a bit odd. I think my biggest peeve, well, one of them, one of them, and it's the same with a lot of the period pieces. I find, like, for the most part, um, BBC does this well, you know, BBC does this well, it, and, and when they team with HBO, like, Rome, things like that, it, you know, it, it, it's done well, like, other people, mm. and, and the problem is, there's this kind of, um, conceit to have everything looking spotless, everything to be shiny and clean, but, like, look, we all know that, you know, there was squalor in that time. You know, just walking through the streets, you're walking through feces. So there's that. People didn't bathe every day. You know, like, to, ba to bathe every day, that's just not happening. It's not happening. So, but for everyone to have white teeth and perfect clothing and stuff like that it's just like that's not it's not gonna happen you know then especially like soldiers to be like really spotlessly clean and stuff not gonna happen like your 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 uniform should show wear and tear just all things like that now this was done really well in rome you know, it, it, it's done really well in like the tudors and certain things but yeah, in this, everyone's just a bit too clean, a bit too perfect, which doesn't fit the narrative of what we know from the time, and, you know, you can have these great sets, you can have, you know, these marvellous settings, but when you have, you know, neglect on things like you know cleanliness and white you know just things like that that can pull you out you know so what we understand what we know and what we're seeing if it doesn't mirror up that can you know distract you take you away from what's being painted initially which is a big shame you know, um, so yeah, there's that, 
there's that. That's a big issue. Um, yeah. But look, as I said, essentially, this is good. It's not a bad series. Um, you know, it's well put together. Like, do I think eight episodes were needed? You could probably you could have cut it. You could have cut it down. Like maybe mm, I don't know six episodes. There was some definitely some filler. There was definitely some filler here, and just other things that you know was just a bit like ah, you know these kind of things don't really work. So there was some of that, um, but yes, essentially this wasn't a bad show. It, it, it's pretty decent. If you're not too fussed about complete accuracy. Now, it does say after each episode that things have been changed from the exact history. It does make that clear. So, if you're fine with all of that kind of thing, yeah, this this will be you all day. You know, if you are a bit of a stickler. You know, this may um, it may rub you the wrong way in places, but yeah, for the most part, it's pretty decent. It's pretty decent. So, um, yes, this is the um, yeah, the Spanish princess, and you can get it. From the 12th of August. That's when it's going to be released on DVD. Um, yeah, it's Certificate 15. Uh, with a running time of 448 minutes. There's two discs. And there are some Spanish subtitles. Uh, yeah. During. Um, yeah. Or most episodes. Yeah. There's not a lot, um, but there are some, but yes, uh, yeah, check it out if, um, you know, if this is your cup of tea. Okay, so this week I read War of the Wolf, which is um, the 11th book in the in the Saxon Stories series by Bernard Cornwell. Uh, and it was narrated by Matt Bates. Um, okay, so this is... Um, <clears throat> this is what it says about the book. Um, Perhaps the greatest writer of historical adventure novels today... Bernard Cornwell has dazzled and entertained readers and critics with his page-turning bestsellers. Of all his protagonists, however, none is beloved as Uhtred of Beffenberg. And while Uhtred might have regained his family's fortress, it seems that a peaceful life is not to be, as he is under threat from both an old enemy and a new foe. The old enemy comes from Wessex, where a dynamic struggle will determine who will be the next king. And the new foe is Skull, 
a Norseman whose ambition is to be king of Northumbria and who leads a frightening army of wolf warriors. Men who fight half-crazed in the belief that they are indeed wolves. Altred, believing he is cursed, must fend off one enemy while he tries to destroy the other. In this new chapter of the Saxon Tales series, a rousing adventure of courage, treachery, duty, devotion, majesty, love and battle. As seen through the eyes of a warrior straddling two worlds, Uhtred's return to fight once again for the destiny of England. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think one big thing is, so this series has been called Game of Thrones but real. Which is a bit, mm, not quite real because... Uhtred is a made-up character, but it is set around real events, so that's the the big thing about this series, you know, and at the end of each book, Cornwell, like, goes through and says, okay, this, this was true, this I made up, so I could take the readers to this, and bum bum bum. So you get that kind of insight, which is always interesting. And um, it's been turned into a TV series from uh, the BBC and Netflix called The Last Kingdom. Um, I think so far it's got three seasons. I don't know if it's getting more. I think that's the big question. You know, if there's enough books, but yeah, who knows what's happening. Like, the TV series is okay. I think some of the castings aren't the best, but, you know, it's one of those things. But we're talking about the book. Okay, so, um, yeah, the book's okay. You know, I didn't mind it. I, to be honest honest i did think that um you know the flame bearer was gonna be the last because it seemed to kind of wrap everything up you know so yeah i I wasn't expecting um this one um which just kind of appeared one day when i was flicking through net um audible so I was like, oh, shit, okay. Um, and I do believe there is a 12th book coming. Yeah. Which is, uh, I don't know, it's a strange one. Because the stories are, the stories are interesting. But I think the thing that really jumps out about this one is that Although the story is interesting, it is very similar to previous outings. So I don't think we're really getting much new. You know, and even on the historical front, there's not a whole heap happening. 
you know we're still in a transitional period and um you know there, there there wasn't a lot happening there wasn't any big major moves or anything i think the biggest thing is um is a death that's the biggest thing but it wasn't like this huge situation well not yet anyway so yeah or, or like it doesn't feel that this is a needed story which i guess is the the biggest thing here like it it's it, it's a fun story um because yeah they're all fun stories essentially but it's not an important story i would that's what it felt like it didn't feel like it was groundbreaking it didn't feel like if i missed this and was to read another book you know if if you if if book 12 was out and i missed book 11 and just went to 12 it doesn't seem like i'd be missing anything of note which is the shame uh, and it's one of those things when you get to a series that has 11 books in it you do get to a point where like um was this book needed oh was this book needed and i i think that's where we get to now like this yeah all the other books seem to have pivotal pieces in them uh, you know especially for utrid and for like english history you know so there was kind of things in it that you learn you're like oh i didn't know that that happened there or that was a precursor to or a ramification of which is that is like that's one of the fun parts of this you know in the previous books that you did pick up that stuff and it made you go oh okay and then look into that bit of history a bit more you know do a little extra research but yeah this didn't have it so uh, although i like the book i yeah i i wouldn't say i loved the book you know it it does it did feel a bit throwaway to me but um yeah history is always fun um and it's always nice to get a little insight so i would say look if you're a fan of this series if you've read the previous 10 books if you're a fan of bernard cornwell then yeah pick this up you know because you'll enjoy it you will enjoy it it's not a bad it's not a terrible book by any means so yeah i'd say pick it up but if you're busy if you've got a lot of reading on this can definitely wait you know what i mean it, 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 it's not a drop everything read so yeah you can wait around and read it at your leisure some time but um you know it's War of the Wolf, book 11. Um, it is narrated by Matt, um, Matt Hives. So, uh, 
Yeah. Go to Audible and um, check it out. Alright? Cool. Well, that has been another episode. So, um, hey, as we draw it to a close, let's hit with some little TV news before we bounce, right? So, um, Dolph Lundgren and Sylvester Stallone are um, continuing their working partnership that they formed since Rocky and the Expendables. So, um, yeah, the, the, the new plan is a, um, a TV series. Um, in this series, Lundgren will, um, will star, Stallone will executive produce. And um, so, basically, it's set around a covert operative at the Department of Safety and Security which is uh, meant to be a part of the United Nations. It's a one-man SWAT team and hostage negotiator. So this is going to be played by um, Lundgren. I don't know if I buy it. (laughs) You know? But, um, yeah, I guess it could be interesting. Supposedly, the idea's been shopped around a lot of... um, studios and streamers and there's been a lot of interest so uh yeah i don't know we'll uh we'll have to see what happens with that uh so over at abc agents of shield is drawing to a close and um so uh, you know this the network is now looking to replace it with a, um, you know, with a, 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 a new TV series that focuses on a female superhero. Um, yeah, like, no, there's no real plan, but it is their kind of strategy now um, to have female-focused shows so um i don't know like if you think about marvel's um catalog of heroes there is a lot of female characters that um yeah this could be based around you know so um yeah we'll we'll, we'll see what happens but I wonder, well, I guess you couldn't do a lecture, but she was probably part of the whole Netflix deal. But there are a lot. There are a lot, and especially that now the X-Men, Fantastic Four and all of that, are back under the House of Mouse. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Um, so, what next? Well, people, um, one of my favourite TV, what, no, sorry, one of my favourite films, one of my favourite films from the 90s has to be Paul W.S. Anderson's 1997 sci-fi horror show, Event Horizon. It was... Oh, it was a tremendous film. 
you know, Sam Neill, Lawrence Fishburne, Kathleen Quinlan, Sean Pertue, Jason Isaacs, Jolie Richardson. You know, it, it was it was just a classic show. Um, film. I keep on saying show. Well, I keep on saying show because people, because yeah, Amazon and Paramount are planning to turn it into a TV series. Yeah, I know. I I, I don't know if this. Don't know if it will work. I mean, like, yes, the nature of the film would work as a TV show, but I don't know if, you know, just the kind of, if this will work now. It was great then. It was great in the 90s. But we've had so much stuff that has kind of spawned from this. So yeah, will it work as a TV show? Who knows? But um, Adam Wingard is set to executive produce and direct. Um, but he won't get to work on this until Godzilla v King Kong um, comes out next March. So uh, yeah, a little bit of time to wait. Um, and, and, and see what happens, right? Um, so, yeah, in other news, um, I'm not quite sure. I think it, it might be for Amazon, but uh, Tiffany Haddish, Blair Underwood, Carmen Elgo, Garrett Morris, and Kevin Carroll have all been cast, no, sorry, it's a Netflix, in a new four-part limited series called Madame C.J. Walker. And it deals with um, the, a black hair care pioneer mogul. It's being produced by um, LeBron James and Octavia Spencer's production company Spencer is going to be playing um, the uh, Walker character uh, and it, and it's just set at the turn of the century America and um, you know just how this lady you know overcame you know some weird marriages cultural diversity of the time family challenges rivalries to become the first black self-made female millionaire so it's an interesting um it's an interesting concept that um yeah will be interesting i'm looking forward to um checking this out and um finally <coughs> oh, apologies, people. But yeah, um, in some good and bad news. So, um, FX have renewed Atlanta for a fourth series, which you know that's great news, right? In the bad news, though, 
The third season hasn't even gone into production yet. So, um, yeah, that's a bit irritating. Um, but, so both series are going to be eight episodes long. And um, so now the idea is to shoot them back to back in spring next year. So, I don't know. There's some thought that the third season could hit towards the end of next year, 2020. But that's whether the whole process goes to plan. And you're filming two seasons back to back. So, I mean, the likely chance is that it's going to come out early 2021. But yeah, I don't know. We will see. But people, that's it for another week. Um, Yeah, we're out and we'll catch you next Wednesday. Peace.